been taken in adultery here, and quite frankly, as I was working away on this message, um, it hit me at a certain point I could work on this for the next two weeks, and it just, there's just so much that is here. And the gravity of the sin of adultery, the, the idea that it just can get so out of hand, you think of, um, I think it was Shakespeare who wrote the line, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when at first we practice to deceive. But we are, here we have an adulteress who faces the light of the world. And it is at once an intense story and at once a wonderful story. But it's something that raises the issue of adultery in our minds. Listen to this. It was about 9 o'clock at night. A man dashed into the doctor's office in a highly nervous condition and explained to the doctor that he had been in a very bad state all day long. The doctor, in his best professional manner, asked if anything had happened to, to sort of shock him or upset his nerves. No, the man answered, unless, well, unless it was the letter I received this morning. He showed the doctor the letter, which stated in part, If you don't stop running around with my wife, I'm going to blow your head off. The doctor answered, Well, that's a comparatively simple matter. Why don't you just stop it? The patient's face fell as he said, But doctor, the fool forgot to sign his name. You see, the problem with this man is that he got so involved in all of his adulterous affairs that it became far more than one to the point that he needed the signature of the man who was going to blow his head off to know exactly which husband it would be. The thing gets so out of control that the best approach is simply to stay away from it entirely. And it is my desire that God would use this time in the Scripture to that end and to drive us into the arms of Jesus. And if you're in that place today, that God would use this to drive you into the arms of Jesus for a brand new beginning to your life. Let's pick up the text in uh, John 8, 1. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, then he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Notice all the people came to him. Literally, the Bible says, and they continued to keep on coming. So it seems to me that what he did was he got up early, knowing this would happen. He got up early to make sure that he was, no doubt, the first one there. That he might be there to minister to the first ones who would get there and all the ones who would come after. And just as a quick side thought... It spoke to my heart of the morning devotional time. Of how there is Jesus ready. Anytime I get there, He's ready. Anytime you get there, He's ready. Earlier when we studied when Jesus said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me. He would have stood and proclaimed that. When you made a proclamation, you stood up and you proclaimed it. But when the rabbis would teach, they would sit down. Interestingly enough, the people would then stand so that the students, the listeners, the disciples would stand as the rabbi sat and taught. I don't know who the fellow was that turned it all around, but I wish I could find him. <laughs> I'd love for it to go back to being the other way, where I could sit and you all could stand. Anyhow, 
Just a wonderful idea that he was there ready, waiting. No fanfare. You, you don't see with Jesus a big media campaign. What you see is availability. Anybody that wanted to come and to be with him, to listen to him, to learn of him, and to follow him, to be freed from their sin, he was there waiting to teach them, to bless them, to free them. And so there he is. All the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. Then into the middle of this beautiful, quiet, peaceful, rich atmosphere, then the scribes and the Pharisees, suddenly they begin to push their way through the crowd. They would have to. And you can see them coming, dressed in their great outfits and all. And they're pushing their way through and they bring this woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And then he stooped and wrote again on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, and probably it's no one but the woman in terms of that pack of wolves that came with her. The people that had gotten there early to sit, to learn, to be with him, they don't know, no doubt just stayed right on with him. And it was part of the learning and blessing process. She's left there standing. The rest of the accusers had taken off. And he said, Woman, where are your accusers who has condemned you? Has none of them condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is an amazing passage. The longer you look at it, the richer it gets. First thing I see here is an uncertain scripture. And I'll explain that. Secondly, an ungodly trap. Third, an unfortunate woman. And fourth, an uncondemning Savior. As you come to this scripture in the Bible... The whole account from verse 2, really, on down to verse 11, it has been a battleground throughout the ages in the church. For this reason, in some of the oldest manuscripts, it is not found. So that there has long been a controversy as to whether or not this story even belongs in the Bible. Left out of some of the oldest manuscripts. On the other hand, it is in some of the other old manuscripts. And thus you have this discrepancy. And I could fill you in on all the details of that. But let me suffice to say there are arguments why it shouldn't be here. But on the other hand, there are arguments why it should be here. One is that while some of the early manuscripts omit the story, the story itself is known and old. It's both known and very old. You find it even as far back as uh, the writings called the Apostolic Constitutions in the 3rd century AD. Eusebius, the church historian, tells us that Papias, who died not long after just the turn of the uh, time period there, knew of a woman, personally, who had been accused before our Lord. Later... Unquestionably, Jerome included the account in the Latin Vulgate. 
Another reason for having it in is that the, the case can be made for its inclusion in this particular place in John's Gospel. In other words, we're in the middle of a pattern right here in the Gospel of John. For example, in uh, chapter 5, the, chapter 5 opens up with an, an incident which becomes the point of all the teaching that follows. He heals the lame man at the pool of Bethesda and then that leads right on into the lesson that follows. You go on into chapter 6 and you have the um, feeding of the multitudes and that flows right on into the bread of life sermon. Incident going before teaching. You come to chapter 7, the whole account of Jesus there with his brothers. They want to go to Jerusalem. He says, it isn't time yet for me. And that unfolds into everything that follows. If you were to take this account out of this point, suddenly you would be landed, finishing off in chapter 7, you would be landed right into chapter 8 in such a way that what follows doesn't make sense. So it's a very good case for it being here in the fact that in this particular section of John, it fits what John actually is doing. Another good reason for it being here is that many feel, and I would agree with this as a good reason, many feel that the story may have been omitted from the early manuscripts because of the basic unbridled, immoral paganism that surrounded all Christianity at that time. So that the f legitimate fear was there, legitimate on one, the one hand, that if they put it into the account, as I said to you last time, if they put it into the account, then people would take it and use it as an opportunity to use the grace of God as a cloak for their sin. In other words, oh well, if you can be caught in the very act of adultery and get off the hook that fast and that quick, then why not? So as a result, the thought is there that some of the scribes left it out because they were afraid people would misunderstand it and misuse it. Augustine, none other than Augustine, felt that that was the case in the late 4th century, and then Ambrose after him, the 5th. And the final reason, I think, that it really does belong here is that the story fits perfectly with everything Christ is all about. Absolutely perfectly. Some manuscripts place it at the end of Luke. Some places in another spot. Whether you place it someplace else in the Bible, it seems to me that it definitely belongs because it so fits the character of Jesus and the brilliance that he shows here is really far beyond what anybody could have just thought up in terms of inserting it in to the Bible. For that reason, I'm preaching it like it belongs here because I believe it does. So the uncertain scripture. Let's go to the ungodly trap. Into the midst of this wonderful, blessed, peaceful, rich, sin-forgiving, life-changing morning come these individuals and they bring this woman, and, and given the tone of the whole account, it would seem to me they're probably treating her roughly, if not dragging her across the open square. We read that early in the morning he came into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they disrupt the entire situation, push everybody back, probably just threw her right down. And they said to him, Teacher... This woman caught in adultery, was caught in adultery, even the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? 
This they said to him, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. The idea behind this is they're trying to trap him. You know, they've been trying to trap him for quite a while. They've been mad at him, wanting to kill him, since he healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day a while back. That's when they began their plot to kill him. They've been trying to find some way to eliminate him ever since. Now with the great swelling crowds that would have been there at that time, they come and seek to discredit him in front of all the multitudes. If you look behind the whole scene, you know the Bible says that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. If you look behind the whole scene, you have the work of the devil seeking to turn everyone away from the liberating words of truth. I learned a long time ago that though we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers, that the devil uses flesh and blood. So we've got to understand that so we can properly deal with what's behind it and get the whole picture. So they want to discredit him. They want to show him on the one hand as potentially a mosaic lawbreaker. Because all the people, which are now divided into camps, some say he's the prophet, some, some say he's not, all the people which are divided up now, they all accepted Moses as divinely inspired and as God's prophet. That's a common ground. If he responds as they would hope he would, he would basically come off with some loving response to the woman. I mean, that's just the way he was. Jesus is asleep on the Mount of Olives. They were probably in a meeting all night. So they figure, knowing how Jesus is, we have a pretty good chance. He's going to say, come on, you men, be merciful to this woman. And as he said to others that their sins were forgiven, they figured he'd probably do that with her. If he did that with her in that place where Moses was so highly esteemed, then he would be shown to be uh, a breaker of the law of Moses against Moses and seeking to overturn what Moses had brought them from God, going against the law which said in the law of Moses that if you were caught in the act of adultery, the penalty was what? It's capital punishment stoned to death. They figure, very small chance, Jesus is going to say, go ahead and stone her. If he doesn't, and he says, forgive her, then we'll get him on being too lenient and going against the law of Moses. It's the thinking of hypocrites. By this point in time, they basically ignored that law of Moses. By this point in time, the problem of adultery was so bad, it was throughout the ranks of the religious leaders. Jesus implies that himself in his teaching to them at one point. Letting people divorce for just any cause, they basically had reduced divorce down to paperwork issue, just a paperwork issue. The implication Jesus gave to the religious leaders when he taught on that was, you have just legalized adultery and you're committing it all over the place. They really didn't really pay attention to that law. They sort of explained it away like they explained so many other things away. But, being the kind of men they were, if they could suddenly act like they really cared about it and exalt Moses, then they could catch Jesus and turn it against him. You understand? And that way turn the people away from him. So they wanted to show him as against Moses. The question is, how does Jesus get out of this one? 
It's one thing to get out of the tax issue, you know, give to Caesar what's Caesar and all of that, some of the other things he got out of. On the other hand, if, if he did say, stoner, I mean, you caught her in the very act, isn't that what the law of Moses says? Then they would show him to be a breaker of Roman law. When they were shouting for his crucifixion, do you remember what the final thing was that got through to Pilate? Pilate's kind of like, I'm out of this thing, and, and thinking of every way to get out of it until they started shouting, and they said, look, if you don't follow through and get rid of this man, then you are not Caesar's friend. You're in big trouble with Caesar, of which he had already been twice, three strikes with Caesar, and you were out. At that point, that's the pivot point, as soon as they mention Caesar, Pilate says, he's going to the cross. To show him as a Roman lawbreaker, then would be the point where they could take him to Rome and say, now you've got a man with treason on your hands, and either way they can get rid of him. Because in reality, capital punishment had been taken away from them. They, they could no longer legally kill someone for any sin. They had to go and get the approval of the Roman government, show how it fit with their laws, and there was this long trial process, that legal process, that had to be gone through. So they want to show him as either breaking the law of Moses or breaking the Roman law, which gives him in trouble with the Romans. If he breaks the law of Moses, then the crowd is going to want to stone him for blasphemy. So either way, they figure they can pretty much see to it that he will be killed as a result of this situation. To them, it's a very small thing to use this woman as a pawn in the process. You see the depths of their hard hearts? It's amazing. And another thing is they wanted to um, show him to be hypocritical even of his own teachings. Imagine this. Here is the one who says to the sinners in his crowds, Come unto me. As he looks upon their guilt-ridden faces, All you that are heavy laden, and I will make sure that as you come, you will be taken in stone for the very sins that you're so guilty of. Come unto me and I'll make sure you get a brick on your head, you know? The one that said, come unto me and I will give you rest. They want to make him a hypocrite even in the face of his own teachings and thus discredit him. They sought to trap Jesus. It's a real evil diabolical plan. The second thing is here is that they had no doubt trapped the woman. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. They had a very detailed law in place at that time concerning adultery. And the basic law was this. Once you understand it, you'd realize it would almost make it mandatory that they had set the whole thing up with the woman to trap her and then just simply use her. If she gets stoned, fine. She's dead. She's out of the way. We don't care. Just another life. We really want him out of the way. Here was the law. The law was that they had put in place, this is not the original Mosaic law, it's their current law, was that if someone was to be executed for adultery, you would have to have two witnesses there to see it at exactly the same time. If you had two people standing there and all of a sudden these two come out of a room together and it seemed like something weird was going on in there, that wasn't enough. If you were to actually be able to have the case stand up in court and see the full extent of the law brought to them where they might actually die for their sin of adultery, you actually had to have two witnesses in the room at the time of the adultery. If they were just laying on a bed, that was not enough. 
The actual law said they had to be eyewitnesses of actual movements that left beyond any doubt, left them without any doubt in their minds, together of the same exact frame of mind, these two were committing the act of adultery, and we both saw it. You understand? You also understand why we have children's church, right? Okay. <laughs> okay. So, if you understand that law, then you begin to realize that just about nobody was executed for adultery in those days because it was just about impossible to catch people because the very nature of the sin of adultery is that you hide when you do it. To actually come and say, we caught the woman in the very act, they would have no doubt had to set it, set it all up. And to do that would be only in keeping with the way they operated anyhow. Don't forget, when they take Jesus and they try him in the middle of the night in the illegal trial, they've got false witnesses, probably paid off like they paid Judas. They have false witnesses there to testify against him. And it is nothing for them to sit there and testify to send this man to his death. It's nothing to any of them. You think it would be anything to get one of their friends, maybe one of them? and say, look, what you're going to have to do is, this is the deal, set the whole thing up. We'll come storming in, right in the middle of it. Joe over here, or Levi or someone, you know, is going to make sure you get out the back door. We don't even care about you. Here you take your money and be quiet. What we're really concerned with is her. You go that way, we'll take her that way. You'll get off the hook. We'll never say a word about it. Ladies, you're not going to like this. I don't like it. But um, they also had another law that if a woman was caught in adultery, that was one thing. If a man was caught with another woman, it didn't matter at all unless she was married to another man. So that the only way they would really prosecute you as a man in that society for adultery is if they were sure the woman they caught you with under those circumstances was married to another man. If it was just a single woman, it didn't matter. So if this woman was single, then he could have gone out the side and no one would have cared anyhow. So you see the depths of the treachery of these men. These are religious men. They study the Bible constantly. They are in, quote, church all the time. This is their murderous hearts. No wonder when Jesus was preaching at one point in time, he got to their hearts and he says, hatred in the heart is murder. He knew exactly what these guys were up to. It's amazing to me, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he had an interesting insight here. He said, if anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity or sexual sin as a supreme vice, the ultimate sin, he says, that's quite wrong. He said, sins of the flesh are bad, but they are not the worst of all sins. He said, all the worst pleasures and sins are spiritual. He said, the pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, watching them suffer unjustly, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting and wrecking someone's life with your words. The pleasures of power, of hatred. These are the worst. He said, for there are two things inside of me as a human being. He said, there is the animal self and there is the diabolical self. 
And he said, the diabolical self is the worst of the two. He's talking about spiritual sin in a human being being far worse. Being a pawn of the devil. Doing the devil's work is far worse than just acting like an animal. So there's some real insight into that. He went on to say that that is why a cold, self-righteous prig, as he called it, P-R-I-G, who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. That's exactly where these men were at. They were far closer to hell than the woman taken in adultery because they were so hardened to all the realities of a true relationship with God in their religious life and doing the work of the devil while they handled the word of God. And he finished it all up, C.S. Lewis, by saying, of course, it is better to be neither a self-righteous individual like that or someone who lives in immorality. So you have this ungodly trap. Let's go to the next thing, and that is this unfortunate woman. Unfortunate, I think, is a good word for many reasons. Anyone who is, is caught in sin is, from God's point of view, in the most unfortunate of all places because He created us in His image to live freely in abundant, radiant, joy-filled fellowship with Him. So here is this unfortunate woman, and she was caught in the act of sin. That is very unfortunate. Caught in the act of sin. They said to him in verse 4, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been caught in the act of doing something wrong that you knew you shouldn't be doing? Caught in the act. You know, one of my favorite things with my kids is to sneak up on them. When they're doing something, yeah, it's really fairly harmless. But to sneak up on them and, and just shout right behind them. You know, kind of like you parents know what it's like to have stuff in the pantry that is there for a reason. You know, not for random con consumption, but there for a certain meal, you know, certain time, certain dessert, certain breakfast, whatever. And you walk up behind your kids, and there they are. they got their hands stuffed all the way down the bag. There's crumbs everywhere. And they have their hand in another bag. And it's kind of like both hands bringing in Oreos and chips and pretzels and everything at the same time. And they know that it's for the Super Bowl party the following Sunday. But they don't care. They're just, oh, they're getting away with it. I love to sneak up behind one of them at a time like this and go, Contra! And they're, oh! Then everything's everywhere, you know, out of the bags, on the floor, across the room, and comes in and thinks I did it, you know. <laughs> it wasn't me, it was his kid. <laughs> but have you ever been caught really doing something wrong? And it's just the worst thing. Listen to this the St. Petersburg Times carried a news item about a hungry thief. He grabbed some sausages in the meat market, thought he'd grab a couple and take off running, get away easy enough only to find that they were part of a 45-foot-long string of sausages. <laughs> so he takes off tripping over them in his getaway, and he ends up all tangled up in all these sausages. The police found him collapsed in a tangle of fresh sausages. He was literally caught in the act. You think of Aaron. When uh, Moses goes up on the mountaintop and, and he, God is riding with his finger in the stone and, and then he comes down and, and here is this incredible, ungodly, rebellious party going on and they've built this calf. 
And Aaron stands back, this golden calf. Now, you, you know how much work would go into that, hammering every bit of the gold onto the thing and, and just all the melting down of the rings and, you know, whoever's ever tooth they pulled out to throw in uh, gold. Getting gold from everywhere, melting it down, it was so much work. Aaron basically stands back and says, it's amazing, isn't it, Moses, how things happen? I mean, here I was, just standing here, by, just by the fire, getting warm, and all of a sudden this calf came out, this just came out. Caught in the act, feeling so stupid, all he could do was say the stupidest thing imaginable. It just came out of the fire, Moses. I mean, you know, that's incredible, you know. (laughs) Getting caught in the act, it's a terrible thing. This poor woman is caught in the act of adultery. Maybe your sin has caught you recently. Maybe you've been caught. Maybe you've been caught lying or being unfaithful or cheating. What happens is you end up overwhelmed with your guilt. God is not in the business of hunting you down to catch you in the act and ruin you. If God catches you in the act, it's to free you from the act. That's the point. See, Numbers 32, 23, God says, your sin will find you out. Scripture asks the question, can a man, in Proverbs 6, 27, can a man take fire into his lap without his clothes being burned. It says, can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? And then it says, surely, Proverbs 6, 29, so he who sleeps with another man's wife will not go unpunished. And there's just so much that goes into that thought. It's the idea, Jesus said, adulterers and fornicators God will judge. Those are the unrepentant ones. Those are the ones that say, I love my sin so much, I just don't want to come to Christ. I remember a guy that I grew up with who who said that to me. We both supposedly came to Christ at the same time. I went in one direction, he went in another. I saw him uh, about a year later, spent some time with him. And uh, as he offered me a joint, he said, "Um, you know something, Uh, I just am, am amazed you're still a Christian. He said... He said, I'd probably be one too. He said, but I love fornicating so much. I can't give it up to give my life to Christ. And I know I may burn in hell forever for it. He said, but that's how much I love it. And I said to him, I've known this guy as long as I've been alive almost. I said, you will burn in hell for your burning lust if you don't bring it to Jesus. And it is not worth it. From what I understand, not long ago, he turned from his sin to embrace Christ, and that was great news to me. You see, there's just so much that goes into this. The Bible tells the story of Samson. You know, here's Samson, and he begins to dabble with all of this. He thought he could handle it, but he falls deeper and deeper and deeper into the vortex of lust until what happens is that as God is giving him opportunities to repent and he doesn't, In the very end, he is ruined by it. His life is ruined. He's blinded. He's imprisoned. You find him blind, imprisoned by the enemy, and grinding for them. Laboring for the enemy, blinded in the prison house, effectively, quote, of the devil type thing. He repents, and he does one last act for God and dies, but his life had been ruined by it, you see? She was caught in the act of sin. 
She was caught in the act of adultery, specifically, and that's the saddest part. But yet there's so much that contributes to that. So much. I mean, that's why I said I could have gone on working on this for weeks. I think sometimes we fail to realize as spouses that you can basically push your partner into the arms of another human being. Men, I think, are especially dense about this. Men and women are so different. Women are so emotional. And men are so logical, you know, at least for the most part. And so men aren't really into the whole feelings thing, at least average men, average women. And it's easy for a man to neglect the emotional needs of his wife because he fails to consider she's exactly different than him. And as a result, by neglect, you can basically push your wife into the arms of another woman because here she's been waiting for all that romance to kick in again any time that was all there throughout the courtship and just assuming you're on break for a while, you'll be back. You know, it's been a long break ever since after the honeymoon, but, you know, she's figuring you're going to get back in action here any day. And then you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't. Some guy comes along and just starts laying it on thick. Flowers at work that you know nothing about, men. And, you know, wonderful, tender looks. You know, the, in, in Hollywood, Mel Gibson is famous for that look that he gives those eyes, you know. And never mind they cheat with certain colored contacts and everything else, you know, to... Some Mel Gibson disclaimer. Anyway, you know, Mel is known for that romantic look. I mean, just, women just, ah, Mel, and his look, you know. <laughs> but along comes somebody like that, and, and your wife is out there in the, maybe working because you have to in these days, whatever, and you don't even know about it. And the next thing you know, you find out she's in adultery with the person. And here you are, Mr. Christian. And you never dreamed that you were doing anything wrong. All the while not knowing you were pushing your wife into the arms of the first romantic, tender, emotionally sensitive guy that came along. And by that time, with enough of that, she caved in and fell. At that point, it can be really, of course she's responsible to God if she's a Christian, but it can be really the man's fault. We could reverse it all and speak of the man's needs and all of that. The wife could push the man in the same way. I think sometimes we fail to realize the reason the statistics are so high. And I could read you statistics all night. The reasons the statistics are so high on adultery is simply that often, especially among Christians. The person, the, the spouse, just not being sensitive to be what they are to be to that person they are married to. So here she's caught in adultery. It's a very tragic, a very sad thing, and it takes such a heavy toll on so many. Listen to what Spurgeon said, and then we'll move on to the last main thought here. Spurgeon said, Woe unto the men that lead women astray. And you could reverse that, make it women also, especially today. Woe to the men who lead women astray. He said, I've heard of sailors who in every port they enter try to ruin others. I charge you to remember that you will have to face these ruined ones at the day of judgment. You sailed away, they never knew where you went, but the Lord knew. It may be when you lie in hell. Eyes will find you out, a voice will cry aloud, Are you here? You are the man that led me into perdition. 
You will have to keep everlasting company with those whom you drag will forever curse you to your face. May God grant that you may be stopped altogether instead of lusting to pollute others, and may you have the desire to save them. May God grant that the channel of evil may be blocked for you, and may you be piloted into the waters of repentance and faith. You know something? I think that's exactly what happened to that woman, this woman taken in adultery. I think this woman was probably very seductive, probably all those things. And after her encounter with Christ went away and started leading people into the light and out of sin, into freedom. And that is the great thing about Jesus Christ, our Savior. Here's an unfortunate woman who meets the uncondemning Savior, which is our last main thought, and it changes her whole life. So here they are, they're trying to indict Jesus and... So, he doesn't condemn her. You know, it's worth pointing out, I think, that the condemning treatment of religious hypocrites is deadly. It's absolutely deadly. You look at his treatment of her and you look at their treatment. Do you realize how many people are out there living in sin today? Because along the way, when they wanted God to help them, instead of bumping into some normal Christians who said, Thank God we have a real Savior for real sinners, and may I introduce you to Him in explaining the grace of God in Christ. Instead, they get this religious treatment, a holier-than-thou deal, you know, super condemning. And, and all the while, these people don't even really know God. Intimately. Maybe they've got a bunch of church. Realize how many people are out there that were driven from God because of some holier-than-thou religious person. That is the saddest thing. That's how they treated her. If it was up to them, she would have probably never come to the Lord. In fact, in the midst of their ministry, she lived in adultery. But now, here's the beautiful thing. Jesus figures out a way. He says, you know, whoever among you hasn't sinned, go ahead and cast the first stone. He figures out a way to get rid of them. And when it's all said and done, when those people have been pushed away from her life, she is left alone to freely gaze upon Jesus Christ. And that's where her whole life changes. And that's where it always changes. Get the religious hypocrites out of the way. Let a person contemplate Christ on their own. And they will surely want to take the forgiveness and the new life that he offers. His uncondemning love is so life-changing. You know, as she is there and they one by one go away because they're convicted in their consciences as he writes in the dirt, maybe writing their sins, Levi, a month ago, in adultery of the same woman. It says from the oldest to the youngest, maybe this guy. Uh, you know what? Uh, my wife's expecting me, everybody. I, I, I forgot. I, I got to go home. And he's gone. And then maybe Jesus writes the next guy. You know, Joseph, somebody makes whiskey at home. And all of a sudden, everybody, hey, he said, what's he writing up there? Well, that Joseph makes whiskey at home. Joseph's going, uh, I got to go. And boom, he's gone. You know, he said, your sin be shouted from the rooftop. It is never God's intention to destroy you in front of people because of your sin. But if you won't repent of it, it's a, it's a different issue. So here they are. They want to destroy this woman. They want to see her dead and they want to see him dead. Maybe he's writing their sins down. And one by one, it's going through the crowd. And he goes from the oldest. They would have the longest record, right? <laughs> the oldest down to the youngest. And then they're gone and she's left there alone with Jesus. You know what I think brought her to salvation? 
Because to say neither do I condemn you is to say she had come to repentance in her heart because God does not give out no condemnation except to people that have come to believe on Him as their Lord and their Savior have turned in their heart. They're gone and she's watching this whole thing. And I think she looked at His majestic holiness. She got up close to Him. You ever live in sin and get close to somebody who's really close to God? And you just get around them a little while and you're thinking, Oh, man, i got to get right with the Lord. I, oh, they're so different than me. They're so free and happy. I think she got right up and just watched him through all of this and saw his majestic holiness. I think it emanated from his face, from his very being. And I think she felt so black and so convicted and thought, Why do I live like this? I don't want to live like this anymore. I think she looked up into his face and saw infinite loving kindness at the same time. The blend of holiness that would convict and loving kindness that would draw her in. A love to her. As he's not condemning her, he's interceding for her. He's figuring out a way to get rid of these guys that want her death. And his. And one other thing. I think she looked up into his face and saw a loving pain. The Bible says he looked down here and he began to write in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote. We know he looked down. There may have been a moment when he looked in her face and looked down just in agony. Let me explain what I mean. Every mother who has had a wayward child, in that special mother's love, you raise them, you give birth to them, you feed them, you nurture them, you change their diaper in the night, you try to do everything the best you can, you watch them grow up and become wayward and live in a life of wretched sin. Every mother who has seen that, where is it in her face? Where is the suffering and the very posture she walks with? It's all there. It's a suffering of love. Watching the one you love destroy themselves and sin. I think Jesus looked in her face and he looked down and he's agonized as the creator who made the woman so beautiful, so pure. He's thinking, oh, you're so far from what I created you to be. And I think that suffering pain, that loving kindness, the holiness, I think it just engulfed her and drew her right in. And I think her heart turned right in front of him. And I think she began to burst forth with a beam in her face as she's embracing him. And he sees it all. He knows it all. He's been interceding, probably praying, touch this woman, Holy Spirit. And he then utters the words. He says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they're gone. And has no one condemned you? He says, he that is without sin cast the first stone. There was only one person in the whole crowd who could have thrown that stone. Jesus Christ. That's why he says, neither do I condemn you. I could, but I won't. Because, you see, having turned to him, she had come to get what he had come to bring. How could he condemn her? Don't ever forget this. As you look at sin in your own life and you come to Jesus for for forgiveness, how could he possibly condemn her when he was going to the cross to die for her? And as you come to the Lord repentant of your sin, there's now no condemnation for you as a child of God. Because that condemnation was born, that judgment was born at the cross by Jesus Christ. He didn't come to condemn, but to save, to rescue, to forgive. God isn't your condemner in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian today, God is 
your forgiver. God is your heavenly Father who loves you. And if God is for you, who then can accuse you? Paul writes in Romans. You understand why? If Jesus has died for you, if Jesus has borne already your condemnation, He looks at your life, you that have been so immoral, you come and embrace Him, He'll come and move into your heart, and you won't want to be immoral anymore. And as you have your failures and your struggles, you'll agonize over it, you'll hate it. But He will not hate you. And as you come, driven by His Spirit, drawn by His Spirit, He will forgive. He will not condemn. Father, charge it to my account. I already paid for it anyway. And forgive and restore and renew. This is the Savior we serve. He is the uncondemning Savior. You can't even use the word Savior with the word condemn. It won't work. He's the uncondemning Savior. Is He yours today? Have you found that cleansing? Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for this time. In your word, contemplating your great love and your great forgiveness. Lord, we thank you so much for a saving God in Christ Jesus. And we come for forgiveness again and cleansing to you now. And we thank you, Lord, that you do forgive and you do wash and cleanse. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.